Once again, good morning. Good to see everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2? If you're new with us, we want to welcome you here and let you know that we are studying through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, last week we looked at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, uh, where Jesus and his disciples and his mother Mary were uh, probably at a family wedding. We think that uh, it was a family related to uh, Mary and Jesus. Um, a wedding that took place in Cana, which is about eight or nine miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 12, after this, the wedding in Cana, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. So as we've just read, here in this passage, Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, there is some debate as to whether he cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, recorded right here in John 2, and then again at the end of his ministry, as recorded in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, or if he only cleansed the temple once at the end of his ministry, and yet John puts it at the beginning of his Gospel, why would he do that? The only thing I can think of, if that's true, and I'm still debating it in my mind, but the only thing I can think of it that John, John organizes his gospel to prove one thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us that he has purposely chosen certain uh, stories, certain things to include in his gospel because he wants to prove Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have eternal life in his name. And of course, to believe, you have to believe in the resurrection. And in verse 19 of chapter 2, he talks about himself being uh, the, the temple of his body, I should say, and how it's going to be killed and raised again. So it could be that John is putting this here at the beginning of his gospel, even though it happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, because he wants to um, set forth his thesis that Jesus is the Son of God and um, that he died for our sins, rose again, that we might uh, have uh, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Uh, you say, where do you stand? I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth. I don't think it's a big deal, all right? Um, I told first service, I, I'm leaning that he cleansed it twice. I'll tell you I'm leaning back to the first one. He only cleansed it once, but John puts it in the front of his gospel because John's a kind of a mystical guy and wants to prove things. And it, anyways, okay, I'll just throw that out. It probably confused more of you than helped you. But we read in verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Uh, the Feast of Passover, as most of you know, took place in the spring of the year, and it was one of three major Jewish feasts. Now, there were seven total, uh, Leviticus 23, God gave seven feasts to Israel. Three of them were major feasts. Uh, that was Passover in the spring, uh, Pentecost early summer, and Tabernacles in the fall. And these three feasts, according to Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, every adult male Jew that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required by law to attend. All right? Attend. And, uh, but don't you know that even though uh, every adult male Jew that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required by law to attend these feasts, and the Passover was the favorite of the three, Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world flooded into Jerusalem for this feast. Now look, right up front, we get an indication from the Holy Spirit, who's writing through John, of course, that something was wrong. Something was wrong. Read your Bibles like a detective. Look for clues, all right? You see, John refers to it as the Passover of the Jews. But in Exodus 12, when God first instituted the feast, he said it is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. Something had changed it from the Lord's Passover to the Jews' 
to the Passover of the Jews. And remember, this is significant. When John uses the term Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He's using it to talk about the Jewish leadership, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. The Jewish leadership, most of whom was corrupt. And I think that's what's going on here. I think this feast had been hijacked by the Jewish leadership who turned it into something so corrupt and unholy that God didn't even want to associate himself with it anymore. Don't call it my feast. This isn't my feast. It's the feast of the Jews. That's what I believe is going on here. Now, what corrupted it? And it wasn't just Passover, guys. That's what we're looking at. But it was like the whole temple worship. All right? But we're looking right now at one element, the Passover, every year. So what corrupted this feast that God no longer even wanted to be associated with? Well, verse 13. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. The temple was a place where sinners would bring animals to be sacrificed by the priests on the altar of sacrifice. What would that accomplish? It would cover their sins. It would cover their sins and allow them to have fellowship or communion with God. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says, The life is in the blood. I have given it to you, the life of these animals, on the altar to make atonement for the soul, to cover your sins, because it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. In God's economy, sin brings death. Okay, The soul that sins shall surely die. And therefore, when a person sinned, they should die. But God in his mercy instituted a system. We call it the old sacrificial system, the old covenant. Whereby God would allow the blood of animals to cover their sins. Of course, it was all a temporary thing. It looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who wouldn't just cover, would take away the sin of the world. Okay? But this was God's way of mercifully allowing them to be forgiven, to have fellowship with him without them dying for their sins. The animal had to die in their place. So that the, the uh, temple was a place where God and man met together for the purpose of fellowship through the blood of the sacrificial animals. However, as we read, we, we, we see from the passage that it wasn't just a place of sacrifice. Again, it was a place where God and man came together. The sacrifice is what brought you into fellowship with God. Your sins were not covered. But it was a place, the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. Or at least that's what God intended it to be before it was corrupted. Now before we look at that, just so you have in your mind's eye, just a, a working knowledge of what we're going to be talking about, let's look briefly at the temple itself. In the New Testament, there are two words which are translated temple. The actual temple proper, the building itself is called naas, naas. And it was a relatively small building in comparison to the whole temple area. The whole temple area. The temple proper contained a building, which was divided into two compartments. The first compartment, the holy place, took up two-thirds of the total square footage of the temple. And it was into that first compartment that the priests would come after they would sacrifice the animal for the sins of the people. They would come into that first compartment of the temple, the holy place. On the left was the menorah. On the right was the table of showbread. And right in front of him, before the curtain that led into the holy of holies, you had a golden altar called the altar of incense where the priests would burn incense that represented the prayers uh, that were going up for God's people. Of course, through the veil, you had the, uh, the last compartment, one-third of the total of the square footage, called the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, mercy seat on top of it, uh, symbolically uh, said to be the, the throne of God on the earth. No one could go into that second compartment, the Holy of Holies, except the high priest, and then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Covering is what it means. And after many sacrifices, many ceremonial washings, changes of clothes, he would then go in with great trepidation and fear, because if his sins weren't completely atoned for, if he forgot something or whatever, of course, they tied a rope around his ankle and little, little bells on the bottom of his rope. and as Because they, you know, they were listening, okay? And as he would go in there, the other priests were standing with the rope, as he would go into the most holy place once here in Dev Yom Kippur, as long as he was moving around, how do you know moving around? You could hear the tinkling of the bells, okay? If the tinkling stopped and you heard a thud, uh-oh. You didn't want to run in and get the guy, so you had to pull him out. 
you know. So it wasn't a joyful time for the high priest, is my point, okay. Uh, he's pretty much scared to death, going to the presence of a holy God, and you know, that kind of thing. But that was the, uh, the temple proper. Now, the whole, beside the temple proper, there, it was surrounded by 33 acres that together made up the temple precinct. The whole area was called in the Greek a hieron. Hieron. I say that because in your New Testament you read how that Jesus went into the temple to teach. He didn't go into the temple building. He couldn't go into that. But he came into the temple precincts. It was all called the temple. But you know, 33 acres was set aside. And there was colonnades and walkways and places where rabbis could gather with their students and teach and so on. That's where Jesus was the last week of his ministry, primarily before the cross in the temple um, teaching. Now, as you uh, approached the, uh, the temple uh, mount, and, and by the way, the whole temple sat on Mount Moriah. Uh, the temple is gone, of course. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But the temple mount is still there. In fact, it's called the temple mount to this day. Mount Moriah, top of Mount Moriah, right? The area closest to the actual temple itself, the temple precinct, as clo closer you got to the actual temple buildings, you would start ascending uh, through various steps up to various courts. These were ascending courts that led up to the very top of the mount where the actual temple building sat. If we were to start at the top, okay, if you could have done this back then, you couldn't have, but if we could have been there, okay, and if we started at the very top, where again, the actual temple building sat and moved downward, the uppermost court, uh, the one where the temple was, was called the court of the priests. And they were the only ones who could ascend to this court. This was the court that you had the, um, the brazen altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar, where animals were sacrificed uh, for the sins of the people. Then after that, the priest would wash in one of these lavers. Now, Solomon, uh, when the uh, tabernacle was built in the wilderness, there was only one laver. But when Solomon built it, I think he made ten, all right? And so he would wash it in one of these lavers, one of these wash basins, before entering into the holy place, the first compartment, where he would burn incense on the altar of incense as prayers to God, and, uh, and God would pronounce a blessing then upon the priest to take back to the people, and so on. That was the uppermost court, the court of the priest. If you came down several steps from that court, you'd come to the second court from the top, which was called the court of the Israelites. This was the court that only the Jewish men, only the Jewish men could congregate in. And they did this, they congregated in this court for temple worship, just the Jewish guys. If you came down from the court of the Israelites, Jewish men, a uh, number of steps, you come down to the third court from the top, which was the court of the women. Now, any Jew could go into this court. It was called the court of the women because this was as far as the Jewish women could go. They couldn't go any farther. If you came down from the court of the women, five steps, you came to a level area uh, upon which a stone wall was constructed that went around the entire temple precinct. From that level area, you went down another 14 steps to ground level to the outer court, also known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he uh, talks about all of this, and that's where I've gotten my information. He's talking about all of this, and according to him, that five-foot stone wall that separated the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles had signs all around it at various intervals stating that no foreigner, no Gentile, was permitted to go any further. The signs read, No Gentile may enter, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. End quote. So you get the idea, okay? It was only five foot high. You could jump it if you wanted to, but they were telling you, don't you dare. If a Gentile's caught past this point, you're dead. You're dead. You, see, guys, that wall was a visible reminder of the separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, as God's covenant people, were close to him. <laughs> now, you know how religion goes? Religion has always got this hierarchy, doesn't it? I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and we had this hierarchy, right? 
We were not worthy to come to God directly. We had to go to the priest, basically, you know. And in the priesthood, you had the, the bishops and the cardinals and then the pope and so on, right? And then Mary, you know, Mary, we talked about this last week, you know. Mary, if you, you, you want to go to Mary with your prayers because she's closer to God than anybody. She'll get you what you need, you know. Anyway, uh, in Judaism, you had at the very top, closest to the temple, in other words, closest to God, the court of the priests. Down from there, uh, a little farther away, close a quarter of the Jewish men. Say they were closer to God than the women, but not as close as the priests. Come down from there, you're descending, right? Getting farther away from God. You had the court of the women, Jewish women, okay? And then from the court of the women, you went down five steps and then went down 14 steps all the way to the bottom because what they were saying is, look, we're Israel. We are the covenant people of God. We are close to God. You Gentiles, you're far away. You're, you're far away. We're close. You're, you're way out there. And, and that's how they felt. That's how they, uh, you know, and of course, the court of the Gentiles was the lowest, okay? And the farthest from the temple. So, so they were really, you know, far away. And even though the Jews were the covenant people of God, even though the Bible says God brought them near to him out of the Gentile nations, because they were Gentiles. I mean, Abraham was a, was a, a, a Gentile-worshipping pagan. I mean, I don't want to get into that, but you can get the studies from Genesis. I mean, Abraham was used by God to start a whole new nation. Before that, Abraham was an idol-worshipping Gentile. Jewish people don't like to hear that, but I'll just share it with you, okay? <laughs> so God calls out of the Gentiles a man that he makes a whole new nation out of, the nation of covenant people. But that didn't mean that God loved the Jewish people more than he loved the Gentiles. Now, the Jews began to think that way. And they, 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 God says you're to be a light to the Gentiles. No, no, we're an exclusive group. God only loves us, they taught. Rabbi said God only loves the Jewish people. He created the Gentiles to feel the fires of hell. That's all the only thing they're good for. You're not going to reach too many people for God with that attitude. But God always had a heart for the Gentiles. He said to Abraham when he first called him in Genesis 12, verse 3, he said, look, I want you... You're going to be the father of a new nation. And you're going to have a descendant. We know Messiah. And in him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It was always the heart of God to take those who were afar off and bring them near. God always wanted the Gentiles to eventually become part of his covenant people. And of course, it happened in the church, didn't it? Where Paul actually talks about in Ephesians 2, how God tore down the middle wall of partition. This is what Paul had in mind. The wall that separated the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles. Paul says God tore down the middle wall of separation that separated Jew and Gentile. And from the two made one new man in Christ, the church. That was always God's heart. And we see it right here in that in the temple area. He created a court by which Gentiles could come to inquire about him. Because he wanted them to become his covenant people as well. And so... Um, this place was a place where God set aside, court of the Gentiles, uh, again, where they could come, learn about God, in the hope that they would convert to Judaism and be brought near to God, again, by becoming part of his covenant people. And the idea was that there were supposed to be priests all over the court of the Gentiles, just waiting for any Gentile seeker who want, you know, to go up to them and say, look, uh, I know you're a Gentile. Why are you here? Well, I really want to know more about the God of Israel. Wonderful. Let me tell you about Witness to the guy, right? Uh, talk to him. Answer his questions. This was all in the mind of God when he made this outer court, the court of the praying with them and so on. It was supposed to be a holy place, is my point. A place of reverence and prayer. But instead, the Sadducees and the chief priests had turned it into a place of business. A corrupt business, which led Jesus to eventually say it was a den of thieves. So that was the temple configuration. What about this temple corruption? Let's start with the animal sellers, sellers of animals. As I said, guys, at Passover time, Jews from all over the known world would come to the city of Jerusalem. They would flood from, in from everywhere. Upwards of two million people, something as much as two and a half million, would come, especially for the Feast of Passover. That was their favorite. And many of the Jews, this would be their first, first and only trip to Jerusalem and to the temple. They lived far and far away, okay? 
For many Jews, this was a dream of a lifetime to make one pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to worship God in the temple and so on. And while they were there, not only did they want to buy an animal, a lamb, for the Passover meal, but maybe they wanted to offer an animal for their sins. They're in the temple. You know, I mean, what better place? I'm here in Jerusalem. I've always wanted to bring an animal to the priest to be offered for my sins. This is a wonderful time, all right? And so the Jewish merchants, working alongside the priests, they set up all kinds of shops or booths in the court of the Gentiles to sell animals, to accommodate these Jewish pilgrims that had come from so far. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. It may have even started off as a ministry. I mean, think about it. You're coming from hundreds of miles away, maybe. You're going to drag a couple of animals with you all that way? It's not real feasible. So the idea was, I'll just buy them there. I'll just buy them there. And then I'll have my Passover lamb for the feast. I'll, I'll have a, a lamb to maybe sacrifice for my sins. And, and so it's, it probably started off as a... Uh, as a, a service, maybe, a ministry to these Jewish pilgrims that were coming too far to drag animals with them for sacrifice. But unfortunately, as we all know, a lot of things that start out good, a lot of things that start out to honor God, ministries, well, as this one did, it, it, it turned corrupt. It turned into a business, and then, as, and then as Annas and Caiaphas, the two corrupt high priests, got their hands on it, a corrupt business, a corrupt business. The merchants working in cahoots with the priests began to really rip the people off who wanted to buy an animal to sacrifice to God, charging 10 times the rate that you would pay out in the street. And even if you did bring an animal with you, it had to pass inspection first before it could be sacrificed. And don't you know, the priests knew exactly what to do. They were, the animal had to be without spot or blemish, as God said, right? And the priest had been coached by the, uh, by the um, high priest and all. You check out those animals over and over until you find one little flaw or defect. And that's what they did. And so you bring this be best in your herd, best your flocks. You bring it to God to offer to him, and the priest will take a look at it and look and look and look and look and look. And look. Oh, see this little pimple right here? Oh, you can't, you can't, you can't, this can't be offered to God. You've got to reject this one. And what would that do? You'd be forced to buy one of their pre-approved kosher animals at the hyperinflated price. I mean, it, was a, it was a real hustle, a, a total ripoff, taking advantage of people who simply wanted to worship God. Don't you know it turned people off? They hated to come to Jerusalem. They hated to go to the temple because they knew once they came to the temple to worship God, they were going to be taken advantage of. They were going to be uh, ripped off. So a lot of them stopped making the pilgrimage. It was, just, it was just too, uh, it just angered them too much. All right, well, that was the animals that were being. So what about these money changers? Well, first of all, let me say this. Every, the law, the law of Moses said every Jew, 19 years and older, was required to pay one half shekel every year as a temple tax. And that money was used for the upkeep of the temple. I don't see a problem with that. I really don't. But here's the problem. You had to pay the temple tax with temple shekels. You couldn't use Roman currency. That was unacceptable. That's what the, the uh, scribes and chief priests had mandated. So the Sadducees and chief priests had set up money-changing tables all over the court of the Gentiles where Roman currency could be changed for temple shackles. You say, well, what was the problem? Well, nothing in and of itself. Except we know from history these con artists were, were charging exorbitant exchange rates. You know, in our time, you, you, you give 10 bucks and you get, you know, 25 cents worth the temple shekels. Just totally ripping the people off who had come to worship God. Again, putting a bad taste in people's mouth. This is what was going on. These were the, this was the corruption um, that was going, wicked men had turned the worship of God into a, a corrupt business. Worship men making money off the name of God, ripping people off who just wanted to worship God. No wonder the Holy Spirit refers to it as the Passover of the Jews and not the Lord's Passover. And guys, again, this was especially tragic because all this corruption and merchandising was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The place where Gentile seekers were supposed to meet with the priest to find out if they wanted to convert to Judaism. And yet when they got there and saw, you know, all of the corruption and greed going on right there in the house of God, I'm wondering how many Gentiles actually saw this 
turned around and went home. I wonder how many seekers who come to God's house today and see all the greed and emphasis on money simply leave and write Christianity off. You don't think there's still money changers today in churches? You say, what do you mean? I was telling first service, years ago we had a guy, him and his wife coming to church, and they had attended a church, I don't know for how long, in the city. And it was, when it was time to give to God, when the offering was to be taken, they had set, I'm not making this up, they had set tables all around the perimeter of the sanctuary. And they had signs on the tables. Two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, all the way up to like a thousand dollars. And you had to get out of your seat and stand in the line at the table depending on how much money you were going to give. So you can imagine very poor people could only give God a couple bucks maybe. They were humiliated to stand there. But they were given like the widow gave the two mites. They were given more out of their pocket than maybe a wealthy person was given $1,000. God sees the heart, doesn't he? But this was all a show. This was all designed to humiliate you to giving more money than maybe you could afford. Because nobody wants to stand in the $2 line when you can stand in the $20 or $25 line. Now let me just say this to you. I personally, I, I'm going to go out on the limb and say this, I personally don't think a pastor or a church that does that knows the Lord. I, I personally don't think, I think that is a, uh, is a charlatan. I think it's a, uh, it's a false uh, pastor. I cannot believe in my heart that a man who really knows Jesus Christ and has the Spirit of God inside them would ever do something like that. And I wonder how many people that God's tugging on their hearts and they go and, hey, let's go to this church here. It's real close to my house. And they walk in and see that going on. How, how many people walk out and say, I'm writing Christianity off? This, this is terrible. But going back to our text this morning, this was a real problem back then. How could the temple in Jesus' day be a place of worship and prayer with so much corruption and merchandising going on? Well, the answer, of course, was it couldn't, and so the Lord had to clean house. Had to clean house. Again, verse 14, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, doves, money changers, doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Mark records in his gospel that Jesus also said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It was never God's intent to keep the access to him limited to just the Jewish people. Eventually, he would, he would have his house opened to all nations. I'll show you how in a moment. But uh, Mark records, Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Mark eleven seventeen. if you're interested. The temple back then couldn't be what God designed it to be as long as it was being defiled by all this merchandising and ripping people off. So Jesus took care of that. He cleansed it from all the corruption and turned it once again into a house of prayer. Now look, there are those who read this account and think that Jesus lost it. Okay? I mean, he lost it. You know? He takes a whip and he's whipping animals and driving them out and turning over tail. He lost it. He was acting in the flesh here. Are you kidding me? If Jesus would have acted in the flesh, that would have been a sin. That would have made him a sinner. And since sinners can't die for sinners, it would have blown his mission and we could not have been saved. People say, yes, but he got angry. And isn't anger a sin? No, anger in and of itself is not a sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Look at verse 17 again. Zeal for whose house? Your house has eaten me up. Again, quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9. Guys, righteous anger is always anger. Listen, when someone else, underline that, is being wrong. When someone else is being treated unjustly and therefore you rise up to defend or to help them. 
Righteous, righteous anger is never about you or me. It's never about me. I, I, you know, somebody wrongs me, somebody hurts me. I'm righteously angry. No, you're not. No, you're not. In God's definition of righteous anger, it's never about you defending yourself. Understand that. Jesus wasn't defending his own honor or retaliating against those who had done him wrong. No, he was acting out of, right, of, uh, of righteous anger because his father's house, the temple, had been defiled and his name denigrated. And so he acted righteously by driving out the sin without sinning himself. Don't miss that. Again, it is possible to get angry about something and not sin. Didn't Paul say this in Ephesians 4.26? Be angry, but what? Do not sin. Well, what do you mean? How can I be angry and not sin? Easy. Look, if you're out driving somewhere and you see an abortion clinic, it's totally justified for you to get angry. It's a sad day when a Christian can look at an abortion clinic and just, you know, shrug their shoulders and move on. When you, when you go by a place like that, you should get angry. That's righteous anger. But you can't stop the car going and begin to hurt people that work there. That is unrighteous anger. God said in Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You pray for the people in there. I mean, we, there's been more than a few abortion workers that have come to Christ. So that's how we, you know, we, what we do. Get angry, righteously angry, and we pray for the people working there that their eyes will be opened. And also you can get involved with ministries that help women to choose to have their children, give them up for adoption, whatever. I want you guys to understand something. Ever since this church was founded, we have supported, you have supported ministries that help young ladies to keep their babies, to give them an option. We, we have always felt very strongly that we need to pray, we need to, uh, to support ministries that help these women not to kill their babies, pray for those involved in the abortion industry, but it is wrong, it's unrighteous, to take matters into our own hands and begin to hurt people. I mean, years ago, there was a guy who claimed to be a, a Christian. I think he was Lutheran. I'm not putting down a Lutheran church, but I think he claimed to be a Lutheran. He was so angry with the abortion clinic in his town, he went in there and shot and killed the doctor. And the Christian community rightfully condemned that. If you're pro-life, you don't take life. You give it to God, let him deal with it. So we don't at all support violence toward anyone uh, not even those in the abortion industry. We, we, we pray for them, give them to God, let him take care of it the way he sees fit. But again, guys, so often the anger that we experience is not of the righteous variety. It's of the selfish, I, my feelings are hurt, how dare they treat me that way, you know. And we always think we're justified in feeling the way we do because, you know, after all, I never do anything wrong. So if somebody does me wrong, it's, I have righteous anger, which means I can retaliate. That's not how God defines righteous anger. It's always anger that you have because somebody else is being hurt. Some, someone else is being uh, uh, treated unjustly. And you do what you can to rise up to defend them or help them. Now it's interesting, guys, what Matthew records happened after the temple was cleansed, after the corruption was driven. I'll read it to you, Matthew 21, 14. Then the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. Of course, these were literal healings, but I think this also applies spiritually. It's only when the house of God today, the local church, is a holy place where people are worshiping God from their heart, where there's not corruption and greed going on, merchandising everywhere. It's only when a church is operating like that can those who are spiritually blind come and be made to see. And those who have been crippled by sin can receive Christ and be made to walk rightly. I can't tell you over the years how many people have come to our church. I know that there's, this happens everywhere where there's a good church. How many people over the years have come blind? I was blind. You were blind at one time. We didn't see things clearly. 
We thought we were right. We thought that, you know, living for ourselves and having sex out of marriage and getting bombed all the time and, 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 and stepping on people to get where we wanted to be. In our worldview, the way we saw things, that was totally justified because only I matter. But then God began to tug on our heart. God began to tug on your heart and my heart. And we came to church. We opened the word. And suddenly, God began to open our eyes, didn't he? We were blind, but now we begin to see. And we begin to see that, look, it's not about me. If Jesus would have put himself first, nobody in this room could go to heaven. It was all about him dying to self that he might live for us, that he might die in our place. And once we began to see that, God began to open our eyes. Our worldview changed. The way we perceived life, the way we perceived our, um, our purpose in life changed. How many people have come in totally broken because of sin? So lame from sin they can't even walk right anymore. They're completely unable to function because they're so strung out on alcohol and drugs and everything else. I told you about Pastor Mike McIntosh. I was on the radio with Mike last Monday. And I never forget re reading Mike's book. This guy was a hippie in the 60s, so strung out on drugs, dropped so much LSD, he completely destroyed his mind. The, the psychiatrist wrote him off. He was completely useless. He couldn't walk. He couldn't function. His wife had to divorce him because he was such a, a basket case. And then one day somebody brought him to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. And he heard Pastor Chuck give the gospel. And he said, look, if anyone wants to receive Christ, go back into the prayer room. And Mike went back there, and the elders prayed over him to receive Christ. He got saved right there. And then they said, look, Mike, is there anything we can pray for you about? And Mike said, my, my brain is, is it's gone. It's fried. They laid hands on him again. And they prayed over him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Mike said, as they were praying, I felt an electric shot shoot through my body. He said, I knew at that moment I was completely healed of all the neuro neurological damage that the acid had caused. God put Mike in his right mind and instantly and then called him into ministry. He's been all around the world preaching to tens and millions of people about Jesus Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying that when you come to Christ, he doesn't just fix you, he remakes you. He didn't just fix Mike and send him back to be a beach bum. He called him into the greatest ministry you could ever have, leading people to Christ. All right, that's the temple of God in Jesus' day. Quickly. I'm only going to get into this just briefly. The temple of God in our day. Turn to Ephesians 2. We know the temple in Jesus' day is gone. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But God still is a temple today. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. Verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We were just talking about this. How the Gentiles were far away. But it was always God, God's intention to, to tear down the middle wall of partition and bring Jew and Gentile together in one new man, the body of Christ, the church. And Paul's talking about how you Gentiles were once far away, but now you're part of the family of God. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Who does? What? what? Every believer is becomes a part of the temple of God. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the church, guys, you are the temple of God today, the place where Jesus dwells in the hearts of his people. Jesus cleansed the temple in his day because it had been corrupted. And only then could it be or become what God intended it to be, a place where people could come and be healed, could be made to see, could be made to walk, a place of worship, a house of prayer that was impossible while it was full of corruption, evil, merchandising, and so on. Jesus cleansed that, cleansed that first century temple so that it could be used the way God wanted it used. And let me just say this to you. 
if the church is going to be the temple of God today, and if it's going to be used by God for the purposes God created, well, you know what? I hate to say this. It needs to be cleansed. Judgment begins at the house of God. We know better. The church in America, I'm going to limit my comments to the church in America. The church in America, for the most part, has become corrupted. It's become corrupted. And it's only going to take a work of God to purify it, to make it right, to fill it with His Spirit that could accomplish the purpose for which He created it. What is the church to be? Only when it's cleansed can it be what God wants. What does God want the church to be? What's its, what's its purpose? What's it supposed to be? What does it look like? Well, we'll get into that next week primarily, but let me just first of all touch on what the church is not to be okay what the church is not to be i'll just give you the first one i will come back next week god willing and we'll continue what the church is not to be number one the church is not to be a place where the worship of god is exploited into a money making enterprise turn to mark 11 Mark records the cleansing of the temple. So they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. Mark eleven fifteen. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry, listen, wares, my version says wares, through the temple. Commerce. Commerce. In other words, Jesus forbid the commercialization of the worship of God. He forbid the house of God from being turned into a business. Into a business. Now, Jesus forbid it back then, but I got news for you. The church has fallen into this very thing today. Today. The commercialization of the church, guys, takes different forms. One form that is very popular today is uh, that is... Uh, running the church, or is uh, very popular today that we see in many places, many churches, is running the church like a corporation that looks to market the church, listen, that looks to market the church to people which it sees as potential customers. This creates a man-centered, consumer-driven model of the church that focuses more on church growth and personal holiness. In fact, I actually heard with my own ears several years ago an elder at one of these giant, you know, uh, churches that looks at, like, the, the church is a corporation and seeks to, to market to, 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 to consumers a product. Here's what he said. He said, we give the customer what they want. Now, on the face of it, that statement is so far off I don't even know where to begin. We give the customer what they want. How about you give the Christian what they need? How about you give the Christian what they need? As one very perceptive lady said many years ago, so perceptive her pastor included in a book he was writing on this subject, she said, you know, when is the church going to get back to, when is the church going to stop entertaining the goats and get back to feeding the sheep? That's exactly what we're talking about. In his book, love the title, This Little Church Went to Market. <laughs> Author Gary Gilley talks about the mindset and the lengths that some churches who have embraced this kind of thinking will go to in bringing what they call unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary into their churches. Here's what Gilley said. He said, I quote, the new paradigm church would have no problem agreeing that unchurched Harry's true need is salvation from sin, although sin is often redefined. <laughs> but they do not believe that Harry will respond to such a gospel unless we dress it up with other enticing offers. Felt needs is the portal, they believe, through which Harry is reached in order that his true spiritual need is met. According to their marketing research, Harry is not interested in truth. Therefore, he does not react well to, thus says the Lord. And Harry is not interested in the future, including heaven. Therefore, reaching him 
uh, through concern for his eternal destiny is futile, end quote. Well, maybe Harry shouldn't even be in church. Doesn't sound like the Lord's drawn him, convicted him or anything. So you're going to take a guy who's not being convicted by the Holy Spirit, who's not being convicted of sin, who doesn't care about what God says, doesn't care about heaven or hell, and what, you're going to entice him to come into the church with what? And then you placate him and make him feel good about where he's at? I don't get that. I don't get it. Now, one reviewer, and I checked the internet to find out some of the reviews on Gilly's book. Uh, all evangelicals, all people that we would agree with, found it very insightful. I'll read one reviewer. He summed it up, and I thought his was very insightful as, as well. He said, and I quote, Overall, Gilly argues that the new paradigm church has resorted to a market-driven approach to evangelism and church growth where the gospel is not seen as something sufficient to attract people. Instead, he argues these market-driven churches try to find out uh, what, what it would take to get people to come to church by finding out what they feel by finding out what they feel they need. So what do you need? Go to a church, go around the neighborhood, knock on doors. Okay, why don't you go to church? I hate church. Well, why, why do you hate church? I, it's just boring, okay? You know, and, and, and okay, so what if, we, what if we made it a little more interesting? What if we had like skits? What if we like make it like a the like theater? I would love theater. Well, we'll make the church like a theater. I hate the music. I hate all those hymns and organ music. What well, we, won't, we won't play hymns. We'll, we'll, we'll play your kind of music. I, I don't want to name names, okay? There was one time I was on vacation, so I went to church. Not our church, I don't want to you know, intimidate, you know, but because somebody's one of the pastors is teaching, I don't want me sitting there, you know, with a notepad critiquing them. Uh, so I, I don't do it purposely. I don't come to church when I'm, I'm on vacation. So our church. So I, I went to another church in the area, and uh, I was amazed at all the secular songs they were playing before the service. And then even during the service. Secular songs. And then I heard the pastor who was interviewed about this said, well, we don't feel it's right to just come to church and only sing to those who know God. Who's going to sing to these people? What you, so what are you singing? You know, Led Zeppelin, Starboy to Heaven? I, mean, <laughs> what, what do you, I don't get it. You know? So you got secular music. You know, it, it's, we're, I told you this story, okay? Let me tell you again. Years ago, my mom was still alive. She came in. She used to come in around Thanksgiving, stay into, into early December. I, I took two weeks off. So we, uh, we went to a church in the area that had this kind of philosophy. I just want to see what was going on. And again, it was amazing how much they were trying not to be a church. I mean, they were trying so hard not to be a church. Like, you know, as if being a church was a bad thing. If you didn't know where you were, you think we were in a corporate center. You know, and this was an auditorium in a corporate center. It was secular music, and the, the, the Word of God wasn't really being taught at all. I left her thinking how sad that this church apparently feels that um, it, it, it's kind of shameful to be a church. You're not going to reach people if, you're, if you act like a church, because people don't want to come to church. Well, if they don't want to come to church, what are we even bothering then? Okay. I want to get the people that God's convicted that want to come to church because God's working in their hearts. So the next week, we went to Moody Bible Church. And what a breath of fresh air. It's around Christmas time, and they were singing beautiful Christmas carols, Bible-based. At that time, Erwin Lutzer was the pastor. He came out and gave a wonderful message about Christ. and Oh, it was awesome. And I walked out of there feeling so encouraged and so uplifted. Because you know what? I wanted to go to church. I want to hear about Jesus. I want to sing songs to the Lord. The author goes on, and we'll finish, okay? So they, they go out these churches, they go out to campus, and they say, what do you want in the church? You know, and uh, then they come back, and they try to implement what they learn, build a church around what people, unbelievers, want. He goes on to say, Gilly argues that this fundamentally amounts to setting forward a new gospel and that the true gospel inevitably falls by the wayside. You can't simultaneously tell people what they want to hear and try to meet their felt needs and then on the other hand tell them that they are sinners desperately in need of salvation, be, having offended a holy God and are bound for judgment unless they repent. How do you merge those two messages together? The author says, I don't know about you, 
but I'm not naturally eager to hear that I've sinned. So if a church operates based on surveys of what people want to hear, it will almost inevitably quit preaching about unpopular subjects like sin and instead, as Gilly argues, preach about how Jesus can solve our problems, give us what we want most in life, you know. Gilly argues that this approach to church growth probably results in church growth, all right, but church is growing, uh, but church is growing by being flooded with people who are unconverted and who remain unconverted, end quote. Folks, the goal of the church is not to build, not to get as many people stuffed in here as we can. I mean, we do crazy things, and we act goofy, and, you know, and pastors, I don't even want to get into it. Uh, one pastor in Arizona, my son went to the church, you know, he was trying to be real creative to get people to come to church. So I told you that, you know, he was going to teach a, a, a study on, um, uh, on Christian warfare. They're a big church, and so he comes rappelling down from the ceiling dressed in camouflage clothing. You know, you know here he is on the stage, right? He's going to teach another series on... Um, on, you know, Christians, you know, need to understand that, you know, Jesus was not a wimp. He was a, a bad guy, you know, and he, he took the temple and drove people. He was a man's man, right? So he comes driving out on stage in a Harley with a leather jacket on to prove, you know, we're, we can be tough as Christians. We're not wimps. The last straw was when he was going to teach on Christian immaturity and the need to grow up. He comes walking out on stage wearing nothing but a diaper. That's when Pastor Chuck called him and said, you know what, knock it off. <laughs> knock it off, okay? Um, we're done. Uh, let me... Some of you think I wish we were done 10 minutes ago. But, but we're done. Let me say the church as a corporation is one way the church is being commercialized today. A corporation... In fact, their churches even look like corporate centers, don't they? A corporation that produces a product for consumers instead of shepherds who care for and feed God's sheep. God willing, we will uh, pick it up next week where we left off um, and look at what God has said his church is not to be and then what he says we are to be. And it's a very simple thing, very simple thing. And if we do what God says to do, and he convicts people and brings them to our church, you're going to see people saved. You're going to see fruit. Jesus said, I will add to my church daily those being saved. He didn't say fill around with her and get goofy and crazy and promise people all kinds of weird things to get them into church. You just do what I've told you to do, and I will add to my church daily those being saved. May God give us the grace to be faithful in doing what our Lord, the head of the church, tells us we must do. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that, you know, it's really very simple. Lord, we make it so hard. We get in there. We're so creative. We're going to show you how to build your church. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive your church, which has drifted away from the simplicity of the gospel. Bring us back, Lord. Father, fill us with your spirit. Drive out a spirit of apathy, carnality, uh, complacency. Lord, we need the fire of God to descend upon us right now, today, throughout this year, Lord, that we might be the church you want us to be and bear the fruit you've called us to bear. Lord, give us grace. We love you. We praise you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.